In-depth journalism in the Memphis community, The Daily Memphian is of Memphis, not just in Memphis, and seeks to tell the stories of this city. TheDailyMemphian.com. Truth in place. Welcome to the sixth edition of the Daily Memphian Grizzlies podcast. I'm Chris Harrington, lead Grizzlies writer, and I'm joined this week by Ben Golliver, recently of Sports Illustrated and now the national NBA writer for the Washington Post, for whom Ben recently penned a profile of Grizzlies rookie Jaron Jackson Jr. Hey, Ben, what's up? Not too much, man. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. So congratulations on the new gig, a little upgrade from, from Bon Temps, who I've had on um, podcasts before. I'll tease him a little bit, but you're, um, so when did you start with the post? Uh, I'm just getting my feet wet really, to be honest, right around the start of December. But you know, when I first got there, they were you know, banging on my door for kind of profile feature subjects, guys who I'd be interested in sort of diving into. And, you know, usually uh, the young guys are sort of where I gravitate just because, you know, maybe they haven't been written about extensively yet, or their story hasn't been told yet. And really high on my list was Jaron Jackson Jr. because I saw him at Summer League and I was just kind of blown away first by his his physical tools. Uh, but then, you know, second, as I started to hear a little bit more about his, his family situation, I was like, wow, there's a lot going on here. This is pretty interesting. So I, I kind of rushed in the door at the post saying, hey, let me write about this kid. I think there, there's something here. And, and thankfully they said yes. And uh, it made for, uh, you know, a good first uh, feature profile. And you, you, you sort of caught the Grizzlies on that West Coast trip. I haven't talked to you about the writing of it yet, but I assume you, you tracked him down. You know, there's a Portland byline on the story, so I assume you, you got him when they were with the Blazers. But did you see any, any of the rest of that trip? Yeah, so I, uh, I flew up to Oakland and saw the Warriors just demolish the Grizzlies, and I think Jaron probably had one of his worst games of the year. And so I was starting to feel like the jinx. Um, and I talked to him after the game in, in Golden State, and, we had a pretty good conversation, all things considered. I mean, I think Draymond and, and KD had kind of made a point to maybe welcome him to the NBA a little bit in that game. And, uh, you know, he had a frustrating shooting game and just things didn't go well for them that night. Uh, and then I saw them play the Blazers uh, the next night, or I guess two nights later, um, and, you know, spent the time around them at shoot around and so forth. And then unfortunately, I was busy holed up in a hotel room in Portland writing that story. Uh, right around the same time he was, you know, hitting the dagger three pointer over LeBron down in LA. So uh, I saw two of the West coast games and missed probably the one that people will remember the most. Um, but I think the, the story came out all right. So you mentioned before, you know, his parents, that's sort of one of the main themes. I mean, the, maybe the main theme of the, of the profile is the support structure he has, you know, both family and, and organizational and, and sort of across the board. Um, so you get a chance obviously to talk to his dad, to talk to his mom, um, who are very impressive. I mean, tell me a little bit about sort of what, what I assume is the first time you talked to them. Yeah, I hadn't talked to them previously. And the reason why I wanted to was because when I was interviewing him after the game, he kept bringing up both of his parents. And you know, he mentioned his dad, um, obviously kind of training him and, and going through the, the player development process when he was uh, a young kid. And he, I could just see the groundwork being laid for you know his unicorn style game. You know, basically coming straight from his dad's hand. But at the same time, he was also mentioning his mom like pretty regularly saying, you know, she's kind of taught me about the business of basketball. I learned, you know, X, Y, Z from her. And, you know, usually when you're interviewing young guys, it's like they pick one parent or the other. And I thought it was just an interesting situation for him where 
uh, he was clearly influenced by both. So I was actually lucky enough to get onto sort of a conference call with both of his parents simultaneously, which, uh, you know, sometimes the three-way phone calls, like even with podcasts or, or anything else, that can be really awkward. And, you know, people are talking over each other and there's just not that smooth conversation. But his parents are both like really upfront. They're like, look, we're talkers. We could sit here and talk for five hours. And they're obviously really proud of his, his uh, early uh, career progress already in Memphis. So I caught them, I think, both in a good mood. And I think we just, you know, sat around talking on that phone call for maybe 60 minutes or, or 90 minutes, um, all told. And I was able to sort of hear the interplay between his two parents and then also, uh, you know, get their story about, you know, his childhood, you know, growing up in Maryland, moving to, uh, you know, Indiana for his mother's job as she became an administrator uh, at the NCAA, kind of their home office. And so that kind of, they moved the family for that reason, which again was interesting because it's sort of the flip of the usual story where, you know, NBA families follow the dad's career around. And that was true earlier in their life, but they wound up moving for the mom's career. Uh, and then just you know, how he blossomed as a high school player in Indiana with his dad being, uh, you know, a, a volunteer assistant on his high school team the senior year. And that, that sort of getting him onto that McDonald's all America type map. So uh, it, they were both, you know, very gregarious, friendly. Uh, and for people who don't know, his mother is actually like the Michelle Roberts of the WNBA Players Association. So she's the executive director kind of in charge with advocating for players. Uh, and so she's, you know, neck deep in basketball stuff herself. Uh, and obviously the, the dad is too. And he's still doing some you know, play-by-play stuff for a G League affiliate. And uh, you know, he's still coaching as well at the high school level. So uh, it's a family that just like, you know, breathes basketball uh, and, you know, they've got a son who just hit the genetic lottery in terms of you know, his physical tools. And uh, I think they did a really good job molding it. Well, you got you have some interesting details in here that sort of paint the picture of of sort of a family life beyond basketball. Right. You got, you know, the bananagrams and the board, the family board games um, where, you know, you develop <clears throat> you develop skills, you know, with your family, whether that's strategic skills, critical thinking skills, you know, inner social interaction kind of stuff, just playing games. I mean, I've got two kids, so anyone's a parent and sort of relate to that. Um, and you've got the stuff in there about him, him taking some classes um, um, now, some college classes now and what, and what his life may have been like if basketball hadn't worked out. I thought that would, that was an interesting sort of part of the story. That's not about basketball, but does relate to, I think what can make him a special player. Oh, totally. And, and like, I mean, his mom is a big shot lawyer, like to be the, you know, to be the Michelle Roberts of the WNBA, you don't just like fall into that job. I mean, I realize it's the WNBA and we don't talk about that probably nearly enough in NBA circles. Um, but to be the head of that organization where you're negotiating, you know, you know, players rights and salary compensation and salary cap stuff. I mean, that's a, a big time job. And, uh, you know, his dad played basketball at Georgetown. And we think of Georgetown as like a basketball school, but Georgetown's no joke from an academic perspective as well. And his mom not only graduated from Georgetown, but she graduated from Georgetown Law. And one of my favorite lines she told me was like, look, if Jaron wasn't a basketball player like his dad, he was going to be a lawyer like me. And uh, she was you know, dead set on that. And I think he's got uh, this competitive spirit. You know, his parents call him a great debater when they, when they sit around the the dining room table, you know, whatever they're arguing about, whether it's rap artists uh, or political events, current events, whatever it might be, you know, Jaron Jr. doesn't want to back down. It's always like he wants to win the argument. And I think uh, that's probably what his mom meant by that is just like his personality in terms of, 
you know, being competitive on the court, but also being competitive whether playing board games or, or having those kinds of conversations uh, would make him, you know, right on that, uh, that pre-law path, you know, if he hadn't done the, uh, the basketball stuff. But I thought another just fascinating detail about Jaron, uh, because his mom is so involved in the WNBA union activities, it motivated Jaron actually to become a player rep for the Grizzlies. And most of the player reps, I mean, a lot of times it's guys who are at the end of the bench or people who aren't really, you know, that actively involved. Sometimes it's veteran guys who have a particular interest in the, in the subject matter uh, or stuff like that. But for Jaron to be, you know, sign up to be a player rep basically at 18 years old and, and now he's 19, I found that just extraordinary. And uh, his mom, I think that might have been the proudest thing that, that she had seen so far. I mean, but besides any of the stuff that's happening on the court, whether it's you know, that three over LeBron or the 36 points against Brooklyn, I feel like him volunteering to be the player rep was like uh, the best gift he could have given his mother. One of the things that sort of has always struck me about the NBA, and I don't follow the other sports closely enough anymore, but I feel like it's a little bit different or more so in the NBA, is that the very best players and the most successful players tend to be really bright. And it doesn't always manifest itself in, you know, uh, you know, an academic way. And it doesn't always come from, you know, people who come from privileged sort of nuclear family backgrounds like Jaron Jackson does. But you think about whether it's LeBron James or it's Steph Curry or, you know, whoever the elite players are, Chris Paul. I mean, there's a level of intelligence that you can sort of you can really grasp in a level of sort of charisma is not the right word, but a, a sense of um, a, a sense of. Um, intelligence and, and, and a sense of composure about those players it seems to me like it's hard to be like you can find examples but it's hard to find great players in the NBA that don't that don't have that sort of special qualities to them to them that's beyond the physical right no I, I definitely hear what you're saying and, and the comparisons that I think I drew in that piece were to some of the other like the high level defensive players right like the defensive player of the year types if it's Draymond Green uh, if it's Rudy Gobert, if it's Mark Gasol there in Memphis, I mean, you go down the list of the guys who we consider like annually, perennially, to be defensive player of the year guys. And so much of what they do, it's their brain, right? Obviously, Draymond's got an incredible motor, but you can waste a lot of motion running around the court with your head cut off if you don't know what you're doing. And to me, a lot of Draymond's success, especially, you know, at sort of his peak maybe a year or two ago, was outthinking guys, knowing their tendencies knowing their weaknesses and just going for the throat and, and being able to captain, you know, the, the five, the four other guys around you, the five man unit, um, you know, as that main backline thinker. And that's really what gets me excited about Jaron, because right now in his role, a lot of times he's playing alongside, alongside Mark, right? Mark's doing a lot of the, the coverage calls. He's the one who's sort of trying to, you know, steer Jaron the right direction and, you know, hopefully keep him out of foul trouble and, and do all those things. But ultimately, you know, five years from now, that's going to be Jaron's job. I think he's going to be growing in body-wise where, to me, he's going to be used as a center a lot like Anthony Davis is now. And it's going to be his responsibility to be that main backline guy for a whole team. And I think not only does he have the length to be a good shot blocker on the basket, the quickness, the versatility on the perimeter, but I really think he's got the brain too. I think that they're already doing the right things off the court in terms of you know, helping him with his study, making sure he's, uh, you know, basically creating a mental catalog of all the opposing players. What are they good at? What are they bad at? What do they do in pressure situations to try to build up that knowledge base? So three years down the line, 
all that stuff is just, you know, second nature to him. He's got it all completely memorized like a Marcus Gasol does right now. Uh, and he's able to really succeed and, and lead a defense at a high level. And I think it's really hard to hype up a player's brain. You know, it's a lot easier to see a guy block a shot, a lot easier to see him throw down a poster dunk. Um, but to me, that, that was what I kind of took away. The exciting aspect of it was this is not just, a, you know, a, a catch-up crash course of NBA defense. They, his parents have been molding him to be a high-level thinker on the basketball court since he was in youth basketball, especially his dad. And uh, I think that's going to you know, just continue to manifest as he gets more comfortable uh, with the NBA, the rules, how the officials are going to treat the game, and then also how he gets more comfortable with his body. I do think the fit with Gasol has been really good um, for 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 Jaron Jackson, both on the court now and in terms of thinking about his developmental arc going forward. And it seems to me like that that's an area where the Grizzlies have sort of been vindicated a little bit because – when he got to, when he was coming into the draft, coming out of the draft, coming into the league, the conventional wisdom, like the smart basketball take, was, "Well, he's a center." And when I talk with people with the Grizzlies, they said, "Well, he will be a center, but he's not. They don't. He's not a center now. He's a four now who will evolve into a five. And I think he's gotten a little bit better playing the five over the course of this season. Um, but he, the Grizzlies, have been at their best with him at the four. I think the given his foul rate, given his slight frame, I mean, it's been a little bit of struggle sometimes with him at the five, but he also gets to learn from Marcus All before, like you said, he takes on that sort of defensive quarterback sort of role. And so I think everyone agrees his future is as a center, but it seems to me like coming into this situation to play the four next to Gasol, as opposed to like what DeAndre Ayton is going through in Phoenix, right, where you're just thrown into the mix as your you know, 30-minute-a-night center, is probably good for him developmentally. Oh, there's no question if you could kind of incubate a talent, Phoenix versus Memphis, first of all, throw away the positions, but just like which organization right. would you rather have a player with? You'd, you'd obviously pick Memphis. But then in terms yeah, it's nice of to have a point guard too, right? a player with, with his skills, right? You would absolutely, I mean, can you imagine not too many better mentors than Marcus Gasol? And I think a big part of it is because of the stage that Mark's in of his career, right? Uh, when I talked to Mark, he was like, look, I – have invested a ton in the Grizzlies. The Grizzlies have invested a lot of money in me. And it's not like he's in that Dirk Nowitzki phase of his career where like, he's no longer a capable player. Cause uh, and he's just sort of riding off into the sunset. Like Mark's still playing really good basketball. They're winning and, and playing well with him on the court. So that gives Jaron kind of the best of both worlds. One, he gets to see how it's done uh, from a guy who's still doing it up close and personal every single night. Right. But two, he's also getting to pick the brain of a player who understands that he's not 25 anymore, right? That he's into this uh, more of a mentorship type role uh, at this stage of his career. And you know, Mark was pretty frank with me. He's like, look, man, it's, it's my responsibility to this franchise and to a player as good as Jaron to, to teach him the right way to do things on and off the court. No days off. Show up early for practice. Don't complain. Play through injuries. Um, and right on down the list. And I, I think that even though Jaron has this very bubbly and kind of kid-like infectious type personality, very lighthearted kid, uh, Mark and Bickerstaff and, and some of the other people around that organization just re repeatedly told me, look, we're really impressed by this kid's professionalism. Like he knows how to turn it on. And again, that's why it makes for such a great pairing with Mark, because if you had a guy who didn't value that type of mentorship, who just came in and said, hey, look, I'm going to be the franchise in three years no matter what. I'm not really that eager to, to soak things up. 
uh, it wouldn't work either. And instead, you've got a, a guy in Jaron who basically his teammates refer to him as a sponge. And uh, he's obviously interested in, in learning as much as he can from a guy who knows how to do it. The, the comparison that his dad made was uh, David Robinson and Tim Duncan down in San Antonio. His dad had won a title with those guys. I mean, I, I think obviously David Robinson's probably had a, a more decorated career than Marcus Saul. And Tim Duncan's had one of the most de- decorated careers of all time. So it's not fair to compare anyone uh, to him. So but I think it's a little bit of a poor man's version. The, rela- the relationship bonding aspect, right? Uh, the positions and the, and the age aspect is really what's going to work out well for Jaron. Yeah, I mean, that, that Spurs comp was something, even before the Grizzlies drafted Jaron Jackson, just in the idea of we'll take a one-year dip and get a lottery pick and be good again next year was sort of, and people were sort of hoping it would be sort of a poor man's version of that when the Grizzlies sort of were in tank mode last season. Um, you brought up what what I think is like the issue of the day in Memphis as regards to Jaron Jackson Jr. on the floor, which is this issue of late game usage, um, which is something people are talking about a lot in Memphis now. You and I thought a really interesting quote from his dad about he, he said, you know, when it gets to the you know the, the the fourth quarter, coaches are deciding, you know, can my big man stay on the floor. And he wanted, you know, to build Jaron into a player who, who where the answer is yes. And I think everyone thinks that's what he will be. But there's a lot of debate about whether he is that now. And there's a lot of sort of um, fans are sort of disappointed to not see him close out games more regularly because they do look up and they see a Lakers game where he's sitting the three over LeBron. They see a game at Brooklyn where he goes crazy. Do you have any sort of opinion or feeling about sort of the issues with him as a as a late game player this early in his career? Yeah, it was his dad saying that was fascinating, wasn't it? Because that was the issue at Michigan State too in the tournament, right? right. Like his minutes got cut, and he, and he doesn't. He gets bench in favor of more experienced players, and the Michigan State fans were were upset with Izzo for the same reason. And now you're seeing it kind of play out again here in Memphis. Um, I think I think that there's some merit to what Bickerstaff's doing. I realize it's not popular, um, but. Jaron's got issues with fouls, and I, he, I mean, that's obvious. Everybody can see that. And if he's having a night where it doesn't seem like his focus is completely there or if there's a tough matchup, I completely understand the idea of, like, look, we've got some real goals here as a team. We're trying to make the playoffs. They're trying to stay in that mix. You know, if the team wasn't nearly as good as they were, if this was a team that was, let's not even say, uh, you know, the Suns, but let's say they were the 14th seed, they weren't in the playoff mix, I think you would see Jaron closing games consistently. And I also think um, if they do fall out of the playoff mix for whatever reason, say in, in March, April, he will be closing games consistently because that's in the best interest of the franchise. But from both the front office and Bickerstaff, the message was we want him to earn everything. We want to set the tone for his entire career. We don't want to just hand him uh, those minutes no matter what. And uh, I think that's going to be a natural tension between uh, a more conservative-minded brain trust within the organization and with a youth-obsessed fan base. And uh, look, I'd love to see him out there every single night to see what happens, but my job doesn't depend on it. The wins and losses, you know, don't affect me. If if he happens to cost them a game late, um, you know, I look at that as a learning experience. But the Grizzlies veterans look at that as a loss. Well, uh, I, think, so I think that's a very natural t- tension point, you know? Yeah, I've been a tap-the-brakes guy for most of this season. I've sort of changed my tune a little bit the last few weeks because I think what's most frustrating for fans, and I think is a valid frustration, is when you see the team losing close games with him on the bench. 
it's not like you know you're not winning. If you're winning, no one, no one, no one cares. No one complains. It's when you're losing games with him on the bench, and you look over the course of the season and like you know the on off and everything else. They've actually been better with him on the floor. There's a case to make that he's the third or fourth best player on the team right now. Um, not projecting out into the future, but like today. But there are the issues with the fouls, the issues with matchups, and so it, it's sort of a complicated thing, I think, here in Memphis right now with 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 that issue. Yeah, and I think that if if everybody inside the fishbowl just took a deep breath and realized that in six months this would no longer be an issue, right? I think that might help kind of calm people. You know who else went through this was Carl Anthony Towns in Minnesota. I don't know if you remember that with Sam Mitchell. Um, I think it's it's one of these things where. Uh, there's this mentality in the NBA of like, okay, young big guys are not quote unquote fourth quarter bigs as, uh, as uh, you know, Jared senior mentioned in that piece. And they, they really do have to kind of prove it. They have to go above and beyond to prove it. Um, and I think that frustrated me to no end during Towns' rookie season, because it wasn't like they had other guys who were competent and capable. They didn't have a Jim Michael green, you know, like they had right. bad players that they were playing instead of towns down the stretch. And, uh, you know, eventually Minnesota sorted that out. And I think Memphis, uh, you know, they're going to get there too. I mean, he really is a fourth quarter big, like put aside, I mean, everything besides the experience factor, he's a guy you want on the court late in games because the defensive versatility is there. The energy and effort is always there. Uh, you know, at least from what I've seen, uh, he's a scoring threat. He can expose your mismatches. He can force other teams to play, you know, a certain way, right? Like if you try to go small against him, I think that, you know, you, pretty soon he's going to be able to exploit that regularly to the point where that's, you're going to have to be setting your lineups based on Jaron's presence. If you're the opposing team's coach. Uh, and that is a really useful thing. And that's again, from years of development from his dad saying, look, I don't want you just to be, a strong low block defender. I want you to be able to step out and switch. I want you to be able to move sideways, uh, you know, to be able to contain ball handlers, to be comfortable and not, you know, frisky with your feet when you're getting switched on to guys, you know, point guards and two guards. And I think again, it, it's just a situation where it will happen in due time. And I also, I want to just make it clear from that piece, like his dad wasn't calling out the coaching or anything. like oh, that. Sure. He wasn't trying to say like, Jerry needs to be playing in the fourth quarter. He was just saying, look, like I realized that once I had a son who wasn't going to be a wing like me. And remember, like Jaron Senior is like six four, right? So once he was realizing he had a uh, a son who was going to be like six eleven, potentially seven foot or whatever, he was already just doing the mental calculations of like, okay, I, I don't want my son to be one of these guys who's always getting pulled from games for his whole career. I need to make sure that you know, he's flexible enough. Uh, and adaptable enough in different situations where he gets to stay on the court. Let me ask you one last thing on Jaron Jackson, then I want to hit a couple other quick topics before I let you go. So if if last summer's draft was redone today, is he locked in, you think, at number two, or is there a chance someone might consider him at one because of long-term upside? Is there a chance someone might still drop him down to three because DeAndre Ayton is still putting up crazy numbers and is such a physical talent? Yeah, I mean, I think my board right now would be one Luca, two Jaron, uh, and probably either three Aiden or Trey Young. I don't like Aiden or Trey Young, either one of those guys that much, but you know, Aiden's had a fairly good season, all things considered, for Phoenix, and uh, he has a lot of catch-up work to do defensively, but I think that you know, his ceiling is still pretty high. Um, I think the team everybody's going to look back on having screwed up this draft is going to be the, the Kings. You know, I, I think 
having passed with the number two pick on both uh, Jaron Jackson and Luca, I think that's going to be the kind of decision that just haunts them for the next decade where they could have had like a major, major piece to pair with Fox and really take a huge step forward. And instead they got a guy who I just don't, I'm just not sold on, on his player type, you know, kind of going forward. Uh, you know, people have also asked me like, what would Memphis have done if they had the number one pick? And you might have more insight on this than I do. My suspicion was that, you know, if Luca had been like, if they could have gotten Luca, um, like if they had the number one pick, they, they may have gone that direction. I don't uh, think but so. I don't think that, I don't think Jaron was any lower than two. I believe that their top two players on their board were DeAndre Ayton and Jaron Jackson Jr. Do would they have actually Ooh. taken Ayton, given them Marcus All? I don't know. Um, they may have taken. They may have. It, I have a pretty strong belief that their top two were um, Ayton and Jackson in some order, and that their three and four were Luca and Bagley in some order. I, I, in fact, they they have said that those that they they thought the top four players in the draft were the top four players in the draft. It is my belief that they had Aiton Jackson a slight tier above Doncic and Bagley. That's interesting because, man, with Aiton, I just do not. And maybe it's the years of watching the grit and grind, so it starts to like, you know, warp your ex- expectations of what a team might value. But I feel like Aiton doesn't really check a lot of their boxes, you know. No, no, well, not no, not now, <laughs> not with Mark. That would have been the interesting <laughs> thing is you know they don't play together the way Jaron would have. I just think the Grizzlies, like I think a lot of people, I mean, he was number one pick in the draft for a reason. Saw him as like a fran- an old school franchise center, like a generational center. Whether he will be or not, I think you know we're still going to find out. I think he is on the offensive end, right? But can he ever be good enough defensively? It's hard to sort of be a franchise center if you're not going to be a plus defender, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tricky. I guess to zoom out though, I don't think that Jaron should be any lower than three from for, for anybody looking at this class. And to me, I think there's a really strong case to have him over Aiden for like just in a vacuum. Not saying the Grizzlies, not saying the Suns, um, because defensively he's already a lot closer to what his ceiling is going to be than Aiden, and I think his ceiling is a lot higher than Aiden's defensively, and then offensively the three point shot makes a big difference. Like Aiden can shoot incredible from 15 feet, but that's just not nearly as valuable to a team's offensive efficiency as being able to be a good knockdown shooter from three, like Jaron will be. So one of the interesting things the Grizzlies front office was telling me about in terms of next steps for Jaron's development, uh, they were really hoping that like by next year, he's got this pump fake at the three point line and then drive assertively into traffic, you know, multiple dribbles, and then be prepared to have counter moves to evade the help defense. So that could be, you know, switching hands as you're going to the basket for a finish. That could be, you know, faking a a drive and kicking out to an open shooter for a drive and kick three-pointer. They really want him to sort of firm up that area of his offensive game. And, And when they were laying that out to me, I was thinking, man, like he has the physical tools to do it. It's going to take him a while to learn how to do those things. He can already he can already that, get to the rim off the dribble from that far out. The problem he has right now is that if he can't get all the way to the rim, he really gets a no man's land. Like he's really lost sort of in the middle of the floor a little bit if he can't get all the way to the rim, either as a shot maker or a passer, he, really. Exactly, and that's that's what they were honing in on. It's like okay, so instead of getting stuck in no man's land how do you learn to absorb the contact to get to the free throw line? How do you learn to suck in an extra defender and kick out to that shooter? You just, you know, how do you fill out your skill set in those situations so you don't get stuck in just kind of 
you know, lost and, you know, the possession dies out, you know, kind of a quiet, slow death. Right. Right. Um, and when, if you start to picture him doing that stuff consistently, now all of a sudden his offensive ceiling is pretty high too. Right. All right. Well, let us, yes, I agree. Um, before we get, we get out of here, since I got you on the phone, help us sort out the Western conference playoff picture real quick. We're going to, we're going to cross off the Phoenix Suns, right? Is there anyone we're circling? Who, who is, who are you comfortable will be in the playoffs in the West? Well, let's do it the other way. I, I would say Minnesota's done. I would say New Orleans is done. Um, I felt that way a couple of weeks ago. They were just kind of trending the wrong direction. And I think, um, you know, both of those to me, like the hole is getting bigger. And I don't think that they've shown enough in terms of cohesiveness to like make me think they can make kind of a dramatic run back into it. Uh, the next team after that I'm skeptical of is Sacramento. They've been fun. They've been awesome. They're a great story. Um, I do think they're getting exposed here a little bit, and I think they're going to continue to get exposed. I think they're inflated uh, positionally or, or kind of in the standings just because of their incredible clutch record late in games. Like they just have been one of those teams that can't lose late in games, and I just don't see that continuing uh, as it continues going forward. Um, I think the, the teams that are going to be battling towards the end of the bracket, you know, Memphis, um, Dallas, uh, I'm not sure who else. Uh, Utah. Let me look at the, the standings real quick. Utah. I, Utah to me is going to be in. I think that I they're actually a team that I could see vaulting all the way up to home court advantage just once their schedule uh, evens out. So uh, yeah, I think uh, I think Memphis has got a real chance. You know, the, the Lakers it depends really to me on how quickly LeBron gets back because that's a team that doesn't look very good without him. And then the other team that I'd be wondering about, is there a free fall co- uh, coming would be the Clippers. They've had a couple of really ugly losses laid by a lot, you know, by, by wide margins. Um, and I think other teams are starting to sort of figure out and game plan for them a little bit better, not uh, just write them off as an, as an easy game, which I think was happening at times early in the season, just because they don't have a lot of big star power names. So those would be some of the teams I kind of expect to, to fall back uh, and be in that bubble. What about the Spurs? You feel good about the Spurs? I think the Spurs are going to be in. It's really tough because if you had asked me a month ago, I would have said, uh, I think they're out. Their offense has just been unbelievable. I saw them just put up, I think, 122 against the Clippers the other night easily. Like it was like, you know, snapping their fingers. Um, you know, of course, they're going to be in that same bubble conversation. I don't see them separating up to like a top five or top 16. Um, but I, I don't know. I'll believe it when I see it, if they're actually outside the playoffs. And they seem like they're in a pretty good group right now. Things are steady. They've solved some of the issues that they had coming into the season with the, with the ball handling, uh, you know, due to all the injuries and all the losses that they had, you know, of, of personnel uh, over the summer. And I think they'll, they'll be able to squeeze in. All right, last thing. I am a regular listener, as you know, to, your, to the Open Floor podcast that you and Andrew Sharp do. And earlier this year, I heard you talk about a visit to Memphis. So you were in Memphis for the MLK 50 commemoration ceremonies. Um, so it was, I wasn't there when it was happening, but I was there this year. And so they had all the MLK okay. 50 banners up. So I was only there for a couple of days, but I had never spent much time uh, down in that area of the country. So it was part of a, like a, like a, a Southern road trip I did. So I went to Alabama, saw Alabama football. I uh, drove through Mississippi a little bit, um, spent a couple nights in Nashville, and then I did the very touristy stuff in Memphis. Um, fascinating city. You know, I, I have not really hardly spent any time there, 
because I'm a West Coast guy. Okay, so we're interested. When you say the touristy stuff in Memphis, what did that mean? What did you do? Oh, well, you know, like I'm Captain Tourist. Like I don't wear the khaki shorts, but I get as (laughs) dorky as possible. So I went went to Graceland, of course. Uh, I went to Beale Street and soaked that up uh, for an evening. I went to um, you know the barbecue place that's that's right downtown that everybody says you have to go to. Right. I went to the Civil Rights Museum, which was probably my favorite of the. Honestly, it might have been my favorite of the whole trip because I just really into that stuff, and they did such a nice job in the in the Lorraine Motel there. Uh, I'm trying to think what else I did. That sounds like the the tourist starter kit. Doesn't that's it? that that's a pretty good trip. Um, next time you're in town, you you got you got to give me a shout. I'll I'll take you a little bit out of the way to some places. I would love to do that um, because, you know, it's the city has such an amazing reputation. And, you know, that, that's part of the reason why I wanted to go down there is because, you know, I, growing up in the West, like you just never hear about it. And it's one of those situations where regionally, I think we've got some divides in this country that shouldn't be there. And that's how I felt when I got down to Alabama, too. It's like I checked into the hotel and they're like, you're from California. What are you doing here? And I was like, what do you mean what I'm doing here? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what you guys got going on. And. I toured the Birmingham Bears baseball stadium, saw where Mike played uh, minor league baseball, uh, you know, saw the Alabama football game in Tuscaloosa. And, you know, I, I'm just big on, you know, I guess, I don't know, cultural exchange or, or whatever you want to call it. But uh, hopefully I'll get back, get back down there sometime soon. No, that's great. Um, ben, I thank you for coming on. Everyone, if they haven't already, should definitely read Ben's um, Jaron Jackson Jr. profile on the Washington Post, which we'll link up on the story page for this podcast. Um, for Ben, I'm Chris Harrington, and this has been the Daily Mythian Grizzlies podcast. Thanks to the OAM Network and Gil Worth. You can subscribe to the site at dailymythian.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at, at dailymythian. And make sure to subscribe to the Grizzlies podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. In-depth journalism in the Memphis community, the Daily Memphian is of Memphis, not just in Memphis, and seeks to tell the stories of this city. TheDailyMemphian.com. Truth in place.